0: Welcome to Thrive HR, a podcast by Thrive Pass. In this show, we sit down with industry leaders to explore the world of HR and everything it has to offer. I'm your host, Andreas Steptola.
1: You know, we're trying to keep the company going. We're trying to keep the country going or our healthcare system going. And you know, it's a big mission and we're all in this together. You're at home, my boss is at home, their dog is running in front of the Zoom camera too. You know, all those things were happening.
0: Welcome to another episode of Thrive HR. Today, Andreas is joined by Peter Capelli, a professor of management and education at the Wharton School of Business. They have a candid conversation about all things remote work. How has it shifted since the pandemic? How does it affect culture? What are the opportunities? What are the downfalls? And what's up with the trend of quiet quitting? Stay tuned to hear all these questions discussed. And don't forget to check out Peter's book, The Future of the Office. Hey, Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, so let's maybe start off with, with some basics. When I did some research about you, I found that you have a very interesting background, right? You looked into unions, certain policies and whatnot. Maybe tell us a little bit more about you and your academic journey.
1: Well, I guess I always took the commoner of interest seriously. You know, that is, what are you actually looking at? Mm -hmm. and maybe more seriously than the lens through which you look at it, which is another way of saying that if you think about the way science is organized, it's organized really around explanations more than it is, frankly, around problems. And I've been more interested in the problems. So when I began my career, there was a lot of interest in, in unions and the arrangements that unions created, you know, we forget at the high point in the US, about a third of the workforce was unionized. And if you looked at people who could be unionized, it was much higher percentage of that. And you left the US and in many countries, it was double that, you know. And then we went through a period, at least in the US, where unions began to decline and continued to decline. And even more than their numbers, their influence declined and the practices declined. So there wasn't very much to that topic anymore. I got interested in public policy issues for sort of similar reason, and that is, you know, these things really matter. And I spent a fair number of years bouncing around Washington, D.C., government topics. And that actually kind of brought me back to the studying the workbook force, because if you're thinking about issues like education, you know, and the skills of the workforce and things. Well, you know, that all depends on what the employers are doing. What are they looking for when they hire? Do they train people or not? And here at Wharton, I had to teach those kind of things. So I ended up, you know, spending some time thinking practically about those issues. And one of the things that had happened in the US in the academic side to some extent around the world, is that the as the union interests collapsed, the kind of people who studied those things were never replaced. In the world of psychology, where they had studied a lot of the institutions of managing people in big corporations, they weren't that interested in looking at any of the new things that were happening. They were still running with that model. So there was kind of a big gap. And that no one was paying very much attention to the innovations like things like early on, people moving across careers, which for a long time didn't really happen very much. Right? And careers that existed that way and, you know, things now about gig work and remote work and those sorts of topics. So nobody was talking about them. So I guess I was, and and it wasn't maybe so much because what I had to say was particularly remarkable. It was more that nobody else was talking about it at all. And, and I was kind of open to the ideas from economics, especially earlier in my career, but sociology and psychology as well. So I guess I'm different than the norm and that I Wasn't really focused on this explanation. I was focused more on the story and the particular problems we were trying to look at.
0: It seems like the the focus on the problems, right, and the practical impact, certainly relevant here for for our audience and. Specifically in this current environment, right? If we you know look at your, your new book, right? The future of the office, there are a lot of problems, right? But before we before we maybe go into the problem, let me let me maybe ask you a very basic question. Why do employers love so much to work from home?
1: You know, it's a very good and important question, and it illustrates some of the problem we have in this area, and that is. We've been racing ahead without answering that question. And we assume we know the answer. And we think the answer is, well, they don't like to commute. And no doubt that there are people for whom that is a big, big factor, but not for everybody. And, you know, for example, in the U.S., one of the things the Department of Transportation tells us is that the amount of time people spent driving when they're working remotely hasn't fallen by as much as you might think. So, they're not commuting, but they used to run a lot of errands when they were commuting as well. Now they don't. So, now they just run the errands during the week. So, you know, they're not commuting, but they're not, they're still driving more than you might think. We just assume that's the story. I think the story is that they were managed quite differently. For sure, there are people who don't like the commute for them was a big problem. And for sure, there are also people who just don't like having to. Get up in the morning and get dressed, and they can go to their desk without even putting on work clothes. For sure, that's true. And I think there are also, though, people who decide eventually that they get tired of that, and they appreciate being able to see coworkers and face to face is really different. So I think back to the story. I think it's far more important than we than we've given thought to how people were managed. The big thing I think that people like about working remotely is that they were managed in a way that gave them much more control over what they did and when they did it. And initially, employers did that because they had no choice. You know, you're not here. We just have to tell you these are the things to do and just get them done. And we trust you. So the other thing we forget is during the pandemic, employers, if they were smart, were asking their employees To help us, there was a sense of mission that was quite clear and palpable. You know, we're trying to keep the company going. We're trying to keep the country going or our healthcare system going. And, you know, it's a big mission. And we're all in this together. You're at home. My boss is at home. Their dog is running in front of the Zoom camera, too. You know, all those things were happening. What concerns me about it now is a lot of those things are not happening. Once you give people the choice, you know, you can decide whether to be in the office or not. We're not in this together anymore. And the sense of mission that we had before, well, that's not really there. The companies turned out to be doing pretty well, especially publicly held companies as share prices shot up and everything, right? So it's not clear. In fact, it, it, let me just be more direct. It is not the case that working remotely going forward will look much like working remotely during the pandemic. We're not in this together now you're, you're alone at home or partly alone. Your colleagues are back in the office. There's not this sense of mission anymore. And what worries me a lot is many employers decide we don't trust our employees and we're not going to just give you control over your time. We see this in the quite rapid expansion of various kinds of cyberware and technology that monitors employees to make sure that they're at their desk or taddle as we're calling it in the us
0: so it seems like that what we assumed as being benefits for the employers might be le- less relevant like you know for commuting times other things but you did mention in fact about flexibility and performance management how has performance management evolved and could this also be a catalyst for positive change right where now I retool performance management I look at more output and, and value added performance management rather than you know checking in and, and making sure we, we all sit down on our desks
1: I think it's a really good test for where you think your employer is going in the future. And the test is, did we try to learn anything from our experience during the pandemic? After we started bringing people back, did we think purposefully about, okay, how are we going to run things now? Are we going to do anything differently? Are there some things during the pandemic that we did that we want to continue? Or are there some things we don't want to do? You know, what I see, frankly, is most employers did not try to do that. And they just brought people back. I think in terms of change, what we should have learned, I think, surprisingly, is that for many people during the pandemic, they actually got more supervision than when they were in the office. And the reason is smart companies, smart employers started to make supervisors talk to their employees about work regularly. So they would schedule it. During the pandemic. So, you know, you got to have a conversation with each of your direct reports, right? And I heard from colleagues of one of the big consulting firms, accounting firms, where when they had new hires and summer interns, they required that the supervisors have a 15 minute conversation with them every day at the end of the day about how did things go. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't sound like very much. You know, you're talking once a week to your employees about work. When they're in the office, you see them all the time. But the difference is in the office, you see me all the time or we're talking all the time, but we're not talking about work and we're not talking about my work and my problems and how things are going. What kind of help do I need? So one of the things we should learn from the pandemic is that having a dedicated context where we're talking about work is really useful. And that don't think that simply because you're around each other, this is happening. Because it typically is not. So, so
0: there are certainly a lot of opportunities. Do you see now if we look at it from the lens of the employee, right? Are there consequences maybe? Un- Unintentionally, so right for the employee, whether this is from a mental health perspective of you work from home, whether this is from a career progression perspective. I don't know if there's any data you can share or you know, share your perspective here.
1: Well, I guess the first thing to, to note is that remote work is not new, and we have been studying it for probably 30 years or so. Remote work started as a kind of formal thing in the US in Los Angeles with something we started calling telework. It started in the 1970s when smog fog was so bad in Los Angeles that in order to make the air breathable, because it was car exhaust with lead in the gas it was trapped in that basin in Los Angeles, they eliminated or reduced commuting to a couple, only a couple of days a week. So people were working remotely by phone, which is why they called it telecommuting. And so, we know a fair bit about how that worked in a context which looks more like the pan than what we're talking about now than the pandemic. Remember, pandemic, everybody had to be at home. After that, people are occasionally at home, and that's what telecommuting was like. And what we know about that is for the people, particularly who decide to be remote when their colleagues are in the office, everything about their experience is worse at work. Now, maybe their life outside work is great and wonderful, but their engagement falls, their commitment to the organization declines, their promotions rates decline. They don't do as well career-wise as their colleagues who are in the office. That shouldn't surprise you, right? If you had an identical twin who was in the office and with the bosses and hanging out with the peers and you're at home and you don't see those people, you're not going to do as well. So for the employees, that's clearly this story for the employee. The question is, what do you get out of remote work? Very clear what you got out of permanent remote, right? That means we're taking your office away. And there are places that did that. IBM did that with, in some of its divisions, 40% of its jobs went remote 15 years ago or so. And the savings there is clear. And the CFOs like this approach, permanent remote. We're going to take your office away. And all those office costs you know, parking, the cafeterias, running the cafeteria, the gym at the office, all that stuff, boom, we can take that away. So they see that pretty clearly. Hybrid, they don't see, because it's not clear it's there, what the benefits are. If they don't take your office away, you're only coming in occasionally. You can see that it complicates their life. As an employer, enormously because schedules are difficult. If you think there's a reason for being there in person, it has something to do with people being there at the same time. If you give people control over when they come into the office, you're not going to get that. And if you try to schedule it so everybody has to be here Tuesday or Thursday, maybe that's better. But what you find is sometimes you need meetings on Thursday and People will tell you, look, is my best day to be home because Friday my kids need this or that. You know, so if you're an employer, the hybrid model, it's not clear what you get out of that. Permanent remote, it's clear what you get out of that. But at the same time, it doesn't seem to work well for entire offices anyway, to have people never come in. Then you are basically independent contractors.
0: So let me maybe ask you two follow-up questions here. One being it seems that there is a Broad from here, so to speak, in terms of the models, right? From one one extreme, you know, you hear Wall Street, I banks want to get everybody back into the office full time, right? Then on the other hand, you have certain technology companies that you know are now remote forever, right? And then you have the hybrid in between, right? What have you seen as be- best practice, right, for for organizations, and what are maybe certain decision-making criteria that you would look at in order to make these kind of decisions in terms of how to structure this
1: moving forward? Yeah. So the first question obviously is how much of our work is done by independent contributors. And that is the the role that they're holding. For independent contributors, you know, they could probably go anywhere. And the studies that you hear about, about, you know, remote work being terrific for productivity and performance and stuff, those are almost entirely jobs where people are working as independent contributors. They don't, it's not a team, a real team. They don't have to interact with other people, whether they're in the office or remote probably doesn't matter so much to those people. Right? So that's the first question to ask. I think the next question to ask is how much interaction, even if you're independent contractors, do you have with people who can't work remotely? So for example, you might have frontline workers in healthcare or something like that, manufacturing. You've got to be there. This work cannot be done remotely. If you allow some of the white-collar employees to work remotely and other employees can't work remotely, how does that play out? What are we going to do for those folks? If it's a big perk to work remotely and only some employees can do it, how are we going to manage that? We should think about. it. If people are working side by side in the office right now, and some of them can go home and others can't, that's something we, we better think about the consequences of doing that. Related to that is the issue of organization culture. Everybody thinks they've got a great culture. It's not true, of course. Culture doesn't matter very much in some organizations, it does in others. But if you think you have competency that comes from being together, and it might be your values and norms, working remotely is going to erode that very quickly. So if you think your culture really matters, the norms and values of a place, you don't learn those by being remote. And one of the things that happens even with hybrid, right now it seems fine for most organizations because most of your employees who you're thinking about being remote have spent quite a bit of time maybe in your organization. They know the people, they know the culture, they know how things work. New people coming in don't have that. And After a couple of years with normal turnover, you got a lot of employees who maybe have never set foot in your office if you're permanently remote or if you're hybrid, aren't there very often. So if you think that issue, culture matters and values matter, then you probably shouldn't do very much remote work. So I think those are some of the things you have to think about in choosing. There is not a best practice in the sense that everybody should do X, right? Companies are not the same, their mission isn't the same. Even in the same industry, they might work differently and achieve the same goals in different ways because of inherent you know needs or slightly different product markets or whatever. So there is no best practice in the sense of everybody should do this. But there are best questions you should be asking and ways to think about them which are consistent across organization.
0: Peter, you, you mentioned something really interesting about the productivity of remote employees, right? You indicated, hey, if it's an individual contributor, it's it's a lot easier, right? And I assume for certain jobs that are more transactional, you can probably put certain measurement systems in place and whatnot. What I'm wondering about is how does the grip work be effective, right? By not being together. And are there ways to measure this? Is there a way for yeah, the academics, so to speak, to, to understand and quantify this a little bit more?
1: Sure, there are. I mean, in this general sense that agile, which was a big approach a little while ago, right? And agile meant, by the way, agile project management, not agile in the sense of flexible. But that agile required lots of continuous and discussion. And that doing that with some people, doing that remotely just was not going to work well. That was, you know, one of the reasons that IBM brought back so many of its employees to the office, because they were moving in the direction of making everything agile. And if you think that's the case, that you're going to be agile and you do that kind of work, then it's, as far as we can tell doesn't work well remotely you might want to run the experiment and and see but so far everything we know about agile is that you need people there to make this thing work right the other thing we know is a lot of the spontaneous benefit a lot of the benefits that come from spontaneous and idiosyncratic interactions don't happen well remotely and maybe there's something we could do about this with technology but one of the things this often reported in their studies of their own workers or people at least using their own equipment software is that time spent in meetings for remote work was dramatically higher 27% higher 20% more time in meetings than people in the office and so it's kind of a myth that you know when i'm home i can be independent i can have more control over my time i'm not i'm not as distracted well if you were spending maybe as much in some place as 40% of your time in meetings before, and now it's 27% more when you're remote, that's kind of a myth, right? So, you know, things like agile, things like the idiosyncratic connections and opportunities to get information without scheduling a Zoom call with somebody, those things seem to be quite difficult to do remotely. And we haven't had any, you know, clear way of making up for that. So you mentioned a lot of the
0: culture, so to speak, right? And maybe limitations of, of remote work and the hybrid model. What is the opportunity, right? And maybe specifically from an employer side. You you talked a little bit about, you know, the obvious, like, you know cutting the cost for the office, right? Maybe I can, you know, now find talent that I wouldn't have been able to acquire before. And are there other opportunities that that you would see?
1: Well, you know, it starts from the fact that there are lots of people who really value this. And if you're the employer, what might you do to get some benefit from that? Well, the simple answer, and there was a survey a little while ago of this, about this, asking employers, whether they thought they could pay people less because they were offering some kind of hybrid or remote work. And they thought that the answer was yes. So, you know, think about this as the equivalent of having a perk or a benefit that people would pay for. So, you know, maybe that's a way if your competitors are not doing remote work, then maybe you have a retention benefit as well. I mean, if if everybody starts doing remote, then those these benefits go away, right? And that is, can you pay people less? Well, not if your competitors are doing it. And will people stay with you more? Well, not if your competitors are also doing it, right? So that is worth considering. Other than that, what's the benefit to employers? Well, if these are less stressed out because they have more remote work, then that would be a good thing. But again, it goes back to your first question. What is it they actually like about remote work? Because you could kill that. You know, I don't think it's just being remote. And the easy way to kill it, I think, is to say, OK, you can work remotely, but we're going to install Tattleware that says there's a camera on you all the time. You can't turn it off and you've got to be at your desk from nine to five every day you get two 15-minute breaks in an hour for lunch. If you do that, I think the interest in being remote is going to fall enormously as it probably should, because the reason for me being home is because I have control of my time and I can get other things done as a result. If I don't have control of my time and I can't get other things done, like take the dog for a walk or greet my kids, be there when my kids come home from school. And you know, a lot of the interest in that is. Going to fall. If your employees like it and they're happy about it and they're less stressed, that's probably a good thing for the organization and its productivity, and you should try to do that. If it costs you a lot to do that, you probably should think hard about it. If you're going to do it and then kill it, that is, let them work from home and then kill the flexibility that they get, you probably don't bother. But it raises another question, which I, I think is important thing to remember. Are there ways We could give employees flexibility, which seems to me to be a lot of what they want, without necessarily going to full remote or full hybrid or something like that. Can we just give them more control over the paid time off that they already have? And I think the biggest one here is on sick leave. You know, One of the things that happened, at least in the US, is that we noticed that sick days collapsed. I mean, very few people ever took sick days during the pandemic. And you might say, well, why not? Well, I think there were two reasons. One of them, they both boil down to I could keep working. And that is a lot of people stay home when they're contagious, as we want them to do. Stay home, don't come in and spread disease to us. But I wasn't so sick that I could. So if I had to take a sick day, I'm not going to bother working. But if I could work from home while I am otherwise unable to come in because I'm contagious or something? Why shouldn't we let people do that? The other problem is right now we have sort of eliminated in many places sick days and we just give people paid time off. And if you're sick, use one of those paid time off days. That created some perverse incentives. And one of them is that people hoard those days and they don't want to take them when they're sick. And as a result, they come in when they're sick because they save that day for something they think, might be more important like going to the beach or something like that you know so so we should think carefully whether there are ways we could give people more flexibility that might actually work for the company where it works for the company is you could probably cut down on the number of pto days you you need and you don't have people coming into the office when they're sick because they're trying to save a day that they could use for something else
0: yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you on that, right? Uh, I originally from Europe, and and a very different system, right, compared to here in the United States. And it's just important if somebody's sick, let's let's make sure they get better, right? And 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 we do the right thing for the for the employee. I want to go back to one point that you made, and it's it's a question that I personally have. I wonder about your perspective here. So, what happens to the Silicon Valley employees, they were employed by you know, Facebook or one of the big tech companies out there, obviously made Silicon Valley salary, now decided to move to a lower state, a lower cost state, right? Or maybe abroad to Costa Rica or whatnot, right? Do you see certain trends there of company trying to reverse that? And what kind of future do you see in terms of that that labor arbitrage?
1: Very interesting question. I, I Here's what I think went on the first is, this is, I think, honestly just hypocritical on the part of the employers. They never did this before. you know, they didn't say, okay, what zip code are you living in? Uh, because if you live an hour outside of Silicon Valley, things are cheaper, therefore we're going to pay you less. You know, some company, Google actually paid you a stipend if you would live close because they wanted you to be in the office more. It was easier if you're going to be there. But the idea that how much your cost of living is, depends how much we pay you, is not something that employers have done before. You know, we don't say things like, well, you got five kids, therefore we should pay you more because you got to support those kids. They don't do that. And they don't look at your housing costs. They don't look at your commuting distance to decide what to pay you. What happened is the companies, those companies decided, okay, we're giving employees the ability to work remotely, what are we getting out of that? And they said, well, that we can cut their pay. So this is really just an argument of making people pay a price to work remotely. And I always tell people whose companies do that, tell them if it's really based on cost of living, I'm going to Hong Kong where the cost of living is higher by about 30%. And I expect a 30% pay increase. You're not going to, right? So I think this is just an excuse to see whether we could find ways to get people to pay for the privilege of working remotely. I think now also what is happening is a lot of Silicon Valley companies did that. They allowed people to work remotely because they thought everybody was going to do it and it was the new normal. And if they didn't do it, they would lose people. And then I think they have decided that, well, not really so true. See Apple and some other companies trying to make people come back. And in that case, they don't want to say, oops, you know, we told you you could move anywhere and work remotely, but now we're taking it back. So what they're saying is effectively, we're going to make it so unpalatable for you to do that, that you choose to do it. So the latest rumor I heard is that the the pay cut that they were expecting you to take was about 20%. And you know, this company Stripe was quite explicit. This was early on. They said a 10% pay cut to work remotely. So I think This is a way of walking it back for some companies and for others just saying, well, what are we going to get out of this? Uh, You're getting something, employees, you should pay a price to get it.
0: Well, then right now we have obviously in the macroeconomic environment, we see high inflation, right? We still have a pretty tight labor market right? Giving all these different factors, how should employers respond? You know, oftentimes in these situations, you have companies that yeah, play the the wait and see game, right? But like most, most companies that are successful will take a more proactive approach, right? How do you think about all these factors playing out?
1: You know, I... I- I think the uncertainty we have seen in the world has gone on long enough now that we can just say it's not going away. Do you think about all the big stories of the last 20 years? They were never things that we predicted. You know, the Great Recession, the epic event in terms of the lives of individuals, and before that, you know, the terrorist attacks in, in the in the United States and, you know, the Ukraine war, you know, these are things we thought were possible. We didn't anticipate these. So if you are an employer, I think the sensible thing to do is to tell your employees the truth about what's going on. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of things we don't know. And here's our general principle, maybe, and here's the direction we're heading. But it is a general direction. And we have to adjust along the way based on circumstances. And, you know, on something like remote work, if you know that you have a point of view on this, you should tell the employees what your point of view is. And if you intend to be flexible, that is, we're going to wait and see, you should tell them that you're you're going to be flexible on this. I think, you know, my own sense is that the labor market is softening reasonably quickly and i think one of the things to recognize is it's quite difficult to take back things that you give employees so you know if you're saying gee if we can't fill this job with the candidate we want that's a real problem and this person really wants to work remote so maybe we should let them well maybe but You should consider the knock on costs of that. And the knock on costs are if you let that person work remotely, everybody else. Is going to ask you to work remotely as well. And if you don't let them work remotely and you let this other person, you've created a big inequity that is going to irritate everybody else for a long period of time. I wouldn't do this as a series of one off issues. And then you discover you've got this hodgepodge of practices, right? Hiring managers, line managers always scream and they blame human resources because human resources won't do what they think is necessary to get them, the candidate they want in this job right now. And of course, the problem for the organization as manifested by human resources is that it's worrying not just about this moment and not just about your job there, but it's worrying about the whole organization and the consequences of the decisions today later on. So I think the other thing that has to happen is HR has to be more aggressive about explaining all this stuff to the line managers. I understand you're going to lose this person or they say they're going to quit if you don't give them remote work. But if you do, here's the problem, the problem, knock-on effects, et cetera. And if we think it's a bad idea to work remotely and you're just doing it to keep this one person, that's really not the smart thing. And maybe the smarter thing is just to look for somebody else who doesn't have those high expectations.
0: I think that that's a really good takeaway, right, To as an organization, to try to avoid these island solutions, right, and really have standard protocols, procedures in place, like a methodology, that people can understand whether they agree with it or not, and then clearly, clearly communicate that. Peter, I want to end our conversation today with a buzzword and your take on it. You, you hear a lot about the the new term, quite quitting, right? So I would love to hear from you. How would you define that, right? So that That term, and then are there ways to measure this, to be proactive? What should organizations do?
1: You know, I just love the modern world of human resources where you can generate a buzzword and suddenly it becomes a big issue. So my colleague Ranya Nemi and I have been trying to generate a new one ourselves. We call it the pandemic personality. We don't even know what it means yet, but it sounds good. So we figured that maybe we can get people to start talking about it. You know, I think to the extent to which there is something like quiet quitting, which basically means the withdrawal of some effort on the part of employees some of this probably is happening some of it happens anytime the labor market gets because the grass starts looking greener someplace else you don't feel as happy with your own circumstances and you also realize that if you had to move you could do it and you know if your boss gets angry with you you could just tell him to go heck and you'll go Work someplace else. There is something, though, I think, which is a little more unique to this circumstance, and that is during the pandemic. We asked the employees for their help and we said, look, we're trying to keep the company together. The mission is really important. We're trying to keep groceries on the shelves or, you know, gas in the pumps and society going. That disappeared. Nobody thinks that's really what's going on anymore. So it wouldn't be too surprised if people felt less engaged. Partly the mission is gone, but also the employers have responded in ways which are not likely to increase engagement. You know, they putting in place tattleware and, you know, the sense of mission has gone away. They haven't replaced it with anything. They're just bringing you back to the office to start over. I wouldn't be too surprised if you did see some withdrawal of commitment and effort. And it's just something, some of it's inevitable, tight labor markets. Some of it is preventable. And that is, what are we going to do to engage people if we're bringing them back to the office now that the pandemic is over. And I think the big mistake companies made over and over is they just brought people back. They didn't say, okay, here's what we're doing going forward. They didn't say, thank you very much. They didn't say, what did we learn from this experience? They just let people start to trickle back in. They didn't do a restart. They lost the opportunity for organization change. And they did all that just because it was easier to do. And so, you know, they missed the opportunity.
0: And maybe a second opportunity, as, as you mentioned, is to replace that mission, right? With a new viewpoint, a new mission for the company, right? To keep that engagement, right? And uh, ensure there's job satisfaction. Peter, thank you so much for your time today. Really, really appreciate having you on the show this this was really insightful my pleasure this podcast is sponsored by thrivepass a trusted hr partner for innovative benefits technology from lifestyle spending accounts to pre tax to cobra administration thrivepass has you covered we personalize benefits you thrive as the employer of choice more at thrivepass.com